0: Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply.
1: Bank of America and a member FDIC.
2: And, you know, we just need to keep that alive. I mean, the more people that are successful listening to this show or any show or reading my book or your book or any book, the bottom line is this needs to be the land of opportunity for people where they come and they they create the dreams of their lives. And there's not a lot of places like that in the world. So that's. You know, I think we need to keep that alive, and that's what's great about this show and America in general.
0: What's up, guys? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Rashad, and I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine is about two things. Number one, people are living their passions, and number two, those who are creating greatness in the world. Doing both of these despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews of world-class speakers and business leaders showcasing their origin story, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now, so it can help you step into your greatness within your own life, business, and career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years in entrepreneurship as a CEO to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation and messages, and I'm stoked to have you guys here guys welcome to the greatness machine i'm your host darius Mershazde. and man do we have a special guest my friend david osborne is in the house david welcome to the show hey it's great to be with you darius oh man it's so good to have you here i mean i've been trying to get you on the show it finally made it happen and here we are we're going to chalk it up and have lots of learnings for all the entrepreneurs and business people out there but man um I don't know if you know this, but The Greatness Machine, it's about two things, right? It's about people who are living, their passions, and those are creating greatness in the world. And I've gotten the honor of getting to hang out with you. And man, you are chock full of both passion and greatness. So it's so good to have you here.
2: Hey, it's great to be with you. I've been, uh, I've, I've been blessed more than I deserve, and I'm still striving for just a little bit more of those blessings.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, man, you make humility look like 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 something we all should strive for because you've crushed it and in so many ways in life. And it's really cool to to get to spend this time with you and to really just to, to, to see someone that's built such amazingness in the world and to get to talk about it. So um I want to give some background though. So how, how I how I know David. So I met David um about a year ago actually. I was invited by uh to this organization called Gobundance. To do a keynote on my book, the core value equation, and uh, Chris Chris Ryan is he's a CEO. He's CEO. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, CEO. That's
0: right. Yeah, he's CEO. So he, he somehow you know what it was was I got kind of recruited to join, and then somehow they, my, I worked my way up to talking to Chris. They asked me to come. I sit next to David. David, you're you're actually did you found that with you and a I did partners? I did.
2: We started that uh, seven years ago now, eight years ago.
0: So I'm sitting next, they had this thing event called Champions, which is for their higher net worth members. And I do a talk on my book and it was, it was so cool, man. I'm just sitting there. We're learning, learning about investing and a lot of people being really vulnerable, real, a lot of humility in that room. And 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 what was funny is right before that, uh, we have a mutual friend, Justin Donald, and I had dinner with Justin and Justin's like, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm talking at GoBundance. I'm doing a talk there. He said, oh, you're going to meet David. I said, Uh, I guess so, and he's like, "Oh, he's like, oh man, like David's a freaking baller." (laughs) He's like that guy's He's like, he's 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 like, dude, he's like that guy, kills it at life, and and I was like, awesome, like I love meeting people that kill it at life, and so and and lo and behold, now the funny part that the audience will know is we get to so this is like October of 2020, so COVID is still in full effect and doing a live event. It's totally not like, like people aren't doing live events quite yet. And this is the first GoBundance big event you guys have done live probably since COVID. I think I, if I understood that properly. And we get into the room. It's at the Van Zandt Hotel in downtown uh, Austin. And it's like the massive ballroom. and There's like 30 guys, but yeah. we're all like 10 feet apart from each other. See?
2: <laughs> they, they said it was the first event they'd had since COVID started. And they had us on these 10 foot tables, each person to one table. They were super cautious appreciatively so and it was massive we were like the giant mega ballroom for 30 guys
0: yeah it was it was pretty impressive so I, I i was lucky though i sat next to you and and we you know like we got to hang in and i was like man david is really killing it at life and and it's been and after that I, we i joined tiger 21 we're in the same tiger group and i've gotten to get to know you even better and how you think about things and i just really think that your entire perspective that we're going to be getting into in just a second here when we really dive into the show is it's something that i think all entrepreneurs and business people really need to take a page out of your playbook. So, really appreciative to have you here, and I can't wait to talk about just you know how you got to where you got to, and really the way you think of life. So, dude, that's well, it's great to be with you, Darius. Did I make you
2: some of my? Did you get some of my Organifi coffee? Did I make you a little latte, like a golden <laughs> you you latte made
0: with turmeric? A turmeric latte.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's my specialty, man. I brought that in. I was super stoked to share that with everybody
0: yeah it was it, i was like no it, it was it, it was delicious number one and, and it was my first turmeric coffee so so you, you you can you can take full credit for that nice. um well i want to do your official bio is that cool if i sure we, yeah I, was, was good. I always like to give our origin stories but then you guys david osborne he was raised in europe and educated in great britain selected as a national merit scholar he attended university of texas and graduated with an economics degree He's the principal owner of the eighth largest real estate company. I'm going to repeat that, eighth largest real estate company in the entire United States with over 4,500 agents. He's responsible for over 32,000 transaction sides um, and $10 billion in sales in 2020. He's the author of Tribe of Millionaires, Mir- Miracle Morning Millionaires, and Wealth Can't Wait, baby. I have a, my own autographed book, and that was a New York Times bestseller amongst the other bestsellers. God, David, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, Darius, it's great
2: to be with you. Uh, You know, it's funny you mentioned earlier, like being a baller at life, and I think most of us that have achieved a certain level of success. uh, And I remember your story, and I was very moved by your story. And uh, I think we're we're usually trying to figure out something that happened to us earlier in our lives, and we never really figure it out. You know, we're still working on it all the time. So people are like, "You're a baller," but in my mind, and where I look at the world, I'm still trying to improve. Like in 42 different areas. Does that make sense? So like. Yeah, things are going well and I've had a lot of blessings, but internally, I'm usually just more focused on like the little tweaks that I'm trying to manifest in being a better dad or a better husband or working on my, you know, my long-term business plan, you know, vision, different things. It's just like, it's a never ending journey of little tweaks to improve the overall operation of my experience of life.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, I'll tell you like, I, when, you know, obviously the baller comment was, you know, it's, playful but but true nonetheless true um for me my perspective of just getting to know you is exactly what you just said is is it's this playing in the game of life and winning in all these different areas that i think when people have maybe a more of a transactional mindset around success it's really around like money like how much like how much well, who's the CEO of the bigger company, and who's the who's got more in the bank account? And I think that that, although those things do provide opportunities, means conduit for for meeting people, those are. I mean, when I look at the list, I'm like, I think those are relatively smaller parts in the whole scheme of things. And so, and I think at least that's my perspective, especially when I yeah, when I read Wealth Can't Wait.
2: I think you need to have enough money to not have to work for money, and then once you hit that number, whatever that looks like with your lifestyle, um, if you, you know, if you keep pursuing money because that's your thing and you want to change the world, God bless you, more power to you. But there's a lot more to this life than just the money in your bank account, and uh, money just gives you the availability of spending time working on that other stuff. Yeah, that's what I think is great about money. Um,
0: Yeah. So, so do you mind? You know, I'd love for you to give give the audience you know, a little background on yourself, because you're, you're you know, anyone that reads your backgrounds, like, well, that's a pretty unorthodox, you know, I guess, adventure to get to where you're at right now, which is, I mean, for, you know, just to kind of give some context, like, you know, David, how many companies do you own? I just, just out of. Yeah, it's going to
2: sound silly, but I've started so many, I actually don't know the exact number, but I have at least 50 operating companies that are paying me a check every month. I'm I'm kind of a chaotic entrepreneur and it's because. I have a lot of passions and I sort of chase my my beginning was definitely real estate and Keller Williams and being the largest Keller Williams franchisee in the country with an amazing partner called Smokey Garrett, who runs the show out of Dallas, Texas. and I'm the chairman of the board, but we're equal partners. Uh, that business I've been doing that for 25 plus years, but along the way, there's been all these offshoots and different things that I've got interested in. Some have failed, but many have succeeded. So today it's, um, it's like a conglomeration of different businesses. I got a high tech business. I have a private equity business. I have a intellectual property business. I have a an entrepreneurial mastermind called go abundance. And there's just all kinds of little things going on. And, and my whole philosophy has always been originally it was to, you know, like I do it, we do it, they do it. So originally it was just to work as hard as I could. Then it was to figure out a team that could run it for me. And then it was ultimately to release control to them and let them run it and You know, generally, I've had pretty good success in finding people that um, are better than me at almost everything. So uh, it's good to be low talent, because if you're ambitious and low talent, you have to find a way to be at the level of success you want to be, but through other people because you can't do it yourself. So that's kind of what I've you know, that's kind of how I've stumbled my way into a pretty significantly sized amount of capital and cash flow and stuff like that. But yeah, I probably got 50 lines, decent lines of income every month, you know, or every quarter. Like I get checks from about 50 different sources. Um, I love that.
0: I, 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 high on ambition and low on talent. I'm like, oh, selling <laughs> so, <so like> me. <laughs> it, it's true. You're, very, you're a
2: very talented guy, but you know, you and I do have that one thing. I think we had strong fathers and I think, uh, wasn't somebody that had been talking about the gift of the father. I'd never heard of that before, but there's a Tendency for a lot of successful entrepreneurs to have had a fairly aggressive father, I guess is the right term, and different that shows up in all kinds of permutations. And I had a great father, but he was very uh, disciplined and he was a Green Bray and he definitely had a his way or the highway kind of approach to life. And I think, you know, that kind of creates a seed of drive to whether it's because you don't want to be in that situation again and you want your freedom, or maybe it's just you. You, you, you pick up some of your dad's fire. There was a certain amount of that that got into me at, at a young age. But all along, I just wanted to be financially free. That was my number one goal. And I achieved that. And But then all the skills I had was around business and continue to build financial freedom. So I just kind of kept dabbling in the game. And the other thing I love is what you're doing right here, which is pouring into others. I think, you know, there's a reason... My mom's English. I was raised in Europe, but I'm my dad's American. But there's a reason so many people come here to this country is because you can make your dreams come true. I know your dad came here because of an unfortunate circumstance in his home country. And you know we just need to keep that alive. I mean, it, the more people that are successful listening to this show or any show or reading my book or your book or any book, the bottom line is this needs to be the land of opportunity for people where they come and they they create the dreams of their lives. And there's not a lot of places like that in the world. So that's... You know, I think we need to keep that alive. And that's what's great about this show and America in general.
0: Yeah, I love it, man. I love every single thing you just said. and I couldn't agree with you more. And I I think that this episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million-dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow, whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs. Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with the samples. Hey there, friends. It's Darius from Mishazda here, and I have a little confession to make. You see, I've been battling allergies for years now. and Let me tell you, They've been a real ordeal in my life. Allergies have been my constant companion. They stop me from fully enjoying the little things in life. Canceling plans with friends because of sudden allergy attack to missing out on an outdoor activity because of sneezing fits. Allergies have been a real nuisance. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing and a runny nose itchy watery eyes and itchy nose and throat and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I've been a Claritin-D user for many, many years now and let me tell you, it's made a world of difference. Since I started using Claritin-D, my symptoms have improved dramatically. Now I can breathe easier, enjoy outdoor activities without worrying about sneezing fits and truly live my life without being held back by allergies. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter now. You don't even need a prescription. Go to ClaritinD.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear, uses directed. even amongst the chaos or the divisiveness and people love, you know, now we have a, a world of abundant, you know, media with all their opinions, trying to get people's attention. The currency of, of the world is people's attention. You know, the one thing that unites us, I think, is people do fight for happiness and purpose and, you know, they want to have a better life for their families. And and to your point in the United States is, you know, for all its f- flaws, there's no place in the world you come to and, and really, Build yourself up from nothing and no one will get in your way, you know, the world except yourself potentially. And so I, I couldn't agree with you more, man. And, and you know, uh, I always hear people talk about the, the, you know, the genetic lottery ticket, you know, mm-hmm. and I think to be born in this country or to be able to come to this country at a young age, um, you, you were born in the UK or you are born here?
2: I was born in America, at 18, but I left at 18 months. I was raised in Europe till I was 14, so I didn't set foot back in America until I was 14, so I, I don't know what that's like. It's kind of hard to describe. I'm an American that was, ra- that was raised overseas, so I, I didn't feel American. I had an English accent when I first got here. Um,
0: wait, wait you, know, you, came, you came here at 18? 14, 14. Oh, 14. oh yeah, that's right. That's right. You, were, you went to school here in Austin. Yeah. yeah so so I, I didn't realize we had that in common, so I was born here and then left here at 12 months and then okay. came back at 18 months. But so I was raised here, but I, but I left briefly. Um, was your mom American? Oh, yeah, yeah. My mom's from Western Pennsylvania, Steel Mill Town. Okay. So full Italian, like straight up, like nice, like gravy Sunday. Yeah, no, no. I, I grew up, I grew up probably culturally Italian American more than anything, but I'm half Persian. Um, so, yeah, that's there's a lot of
2: commonalities because then you're like, we, yes, I'm American, I'm American heritage, but I grew up overseas. So I have a massive appreciation for the opportunity we have here.
0: Yeah. It's incredible. I want to, so I want to talk about that. So you, so did, you know, obviously you're super entrepreneurial and ambitious. When is the first time you realized, oh, I'm, this is like, I'm going to go pave my own way. I'm going to go clear my own path.
2: Yeah. I grew up on a farm in England, somewhat my great uncle. So I was kind of the, getting the eggs out from under the chickens and doing some hay baling and stuff. Not, not in that extreme way that a farmer from Nebraska would, but when we were off, we often were working. So there was a lot of work to be done. Um, and then I came over here and I worked. Uh, my first job was sacking groceries. And I did that because my buddy was a grocery sacker and I, I just tried to be the fastest grocery sacker in the store. But I also acted like I owned the place um, and I got fired for insolence from that job. And so then I started a long. Then I went into construction where I just worked my tail off, too. I always just noticed I was willing to work hard, not at schoolwork, funnily enough. I was a terrible I was a C student in school. But even when I worked uh, landscape architecture outside. And I was digging a ditch like one, what the second year on this job, the second summer. And I remember one of the veterans looked over, he goes, you still haven't learned. And what he was implying is I was still digging too hard. I was just going too fast in the sun to, to be smart. So, but, but you know, that was just me. So then I started a lawn mowing company. I made 20 grand when I was 17 years old, living at my house. And that's, wow. that's big money. That's 20 grand cash in 1980, something it was probably worth 40 grand today. I was the richest I ever felt. Probably. Um, so I just saw early on that I didn't fit in people's boxes. You know, I wasn't like able, I was a very good employee. I kind of like, I had a bit of an ownership mentality early. Um, yeah, I just always felt like there was something in me driven in that space to find the quickest way to, 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 improve whatever I was doing and around me. And then also eventually to create financial freedom. Now my lucky break was Keller Williams, but all along, and if you looked at all my work efforts, I was always working really hard, which is incredible because I was a, a 2.2 GPA to get out of college. I just didn't care about schoolwork at all.
0: Yeah, well, you know what's funny is I was so yeah. We have so much in common. I mean, I was same like always oh, a heart, super hard worker, great work ethic. I was bored with school, but and I actually tried dropping out when I was 20, and my mom was like you know you well, just you know like you need something to fall back on i'm like but i'm going to work for myself what do i need a degree for like like there's no res, no one's taking my resume and hiring me for it um and my grades weren't that good what, what the one thing i will say is i went to india when i was 20 Mm. I went to a, I stayed in a delete village, which is the untouchables. I don't know if you're familiar with it, with this. Yeah, a little bit. I know they got a pretty strong cast system over there for sure. It's, yeah, it's the bottom of the cast, right? Yeah. So it's the lowest cast. And I went to a, like a delete orphanage and I went to a delete village and I was 20 and I really had barely, I think I had like a two seven GPA or something. And, and, I, and literally like I just, I would choke the last day of class and cram for the final and, you know, but and, and I, and I felt shame when I left that experience wow and, and the shame I felt was I have been the, given the privilege of education and mm-hmm. opportunity and I'm totally just like slapping it in the face by not trying and and then I changed I got straight A's after that because I was like I'm gonna at least try hard if I'm gonna do it you know yeah that's beautiful yeah I
2: I, I got that lesson a little bit later I didn't really understand how privileged I was I was just kind of a rebel without a clue I was a little angry with the world. I, my my sc- high school years were pretty bumpy. I got thrown out of three high schools just for insolence. So I had this kind of, I couldn't shut my mouth. I wasn't really afraid of any adults except my father. That was the only human I was really afraid of. And I was just dumb enough to keep talking when I shouldn't and keep speaking back when I f- shouldn't. So yeah, I, I came from a pretty bumpy road and then I got on the highway of life. Now I've smoothed it out. So, you know, when I'm, you know, I, I, I've just spent a lot of time r- smoothing out my rougher edges. And, and when I'm in a country club setting now, because I love golf with my family, I'm always kind of I feel like I kind of have to hold my reins and my horse back because there's something pretty aggressive inside of me. But it's mellowing, which is good. And then I realized the privilege thing when I started doing some charitable work. And, you know, I hitchhiked through India, too, and I got I came away from there with gratitude. And I think I've had massive gratitude for the opportunities we have in America and how difficult it is in most of the world, like unfathomably difficult. Oh, so bad. But then it took me a while to realize how privileged I was even in America. Like, you know, as tough as my dad was, he wanted me to be educated. He was committed to my education. In fact, the only time I ever saw him cry was when I got thrown out of that third high school. You know, he was <laughs> enraged, super disciplined and then just cried. I'm like, wow, that's that actually got my attention more than almost anything. I was like, oh, maybe I should kind of suck it up a little bit here. But, um, you really but care. I saw gratitude cause I saw the slums in India. I hit, I was seven weeks in India. I was like, Oh my gosh, like these people are born with zero chance, like it's almost crazy. zero
0: chance. It's crazy.
2: And then it took me a long time to realize in America there's that too, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, there's a whole class of people here that are born without opportunity. And like a friend of mine who did jail time for killing a guy, Will Little, he, you know, his 13 years old, his stepdad puts a gun in his face and says, get out of the house or I'll kill you. You know, that's a, that's a very that's hard. Right. That's a lot different than my background and what I what I had to deal with. So now I understand the nuances much better. But, I'm, you know, I, I still think it's very important. We try to protect as wide a range of opportunity and possibility in this country as possible, because the more you hammer that down and you take that away, the less, you know, the less freedom exists in the world. So I'm, I'm much more educated, though, and aware today than I ever have been.
0: There a there's a a, a book uh, I think it's called A Tale of Two Countries. Um, I was at TED, the TED conference uh, about six years ago, and and it was it's really it's a TED talk too, like not TEDx, the actual TED. I'm writing and, it down right now a tale, yeah, a tale of two, a tale, two countries. Oh, a tale of two countries, I believe that's what it's called. And it's this, it's this writer from I think he's from like UPenn or something, and he essentially writes about the the two like because a lot of times you hear people say, well, you know. In this country you know people come here from third world countries and they make it why can't our own citizens make it right and they use the example of kind of like what you're talking about these people born into poverty in the united states um lower lower no education right abuse violence and then and then you have these folks and the the example they use in this talk is a guy that came here i think from pakistan and he gets shot in the face by somebody, you know, and he ends up making amends with the guy that just sh- shoots him with the shot. He shot him with a, it was a shotgun, but it was not the kind, it was a, like a spray, like for bird, 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 shot. Right. So, you know, and he ended up losing his job. And, and, and it, anyway, it's it's this whole story about these two classes within the lower class of the United States. And, and I think that like the way I'm kind of, then thinking about it and been getting more interested is how do you bridge that gap? You know, and I was talking do you know, Javon McCormick, uh
2: not ringing a bell, but keep going. He,
0: he he's the CEO scribe, uh Tucker Max's company. And um and so he and I were talking about this where Oh yeah, I've met him. Yeah, Part great guy. Mind. Great guy, like an amazing guy. And and he was on the show and, and he and I were talking about it. I said, you know, there's all these kids where they wake up the day they woke the day they were born in this country, like they had a, they have 51 out of 52 cards stacked against them. Yeah. You know? And and I think that's where when I started looking at as entrepreneurs or CEOs or business folks or anyone for that matter, if you really want to go make a difference, it's like, how do you unstack that deck? Because, you know, I think that's where we start to look at the America that we live in and say, listen, below that we do have the infrastructure. We do have the ability to create a better, a better country. And I think entrepreneurship is the answer to that. And there's a woman by the name of Kat Hoke. And she wrote a, she had a, she had, she has an organization. It's called, um, hustle 2.0. And, um, she had another company called Defy Ventures and she uh, I am blanking on her name on the name of her book, but it was a New York Times bestseller. And I saw her speak. And what she did, she went to Brownsville Penitentiary down in Texas, and they started this program where they were basically teaching these guys entrepreneurism, these like hardcore felons. And the recidivism rate for these guys when they came out of jail went from like seventy-three percent. It's a really high number. Like if you if you have a felony for like a serious felony, the recidivism rate's like the chance of you going back to jail is like seven or eight out of 10 chances, right? Wow. And it dropped to 7% from people that graduated her program. Wow. And 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 the answer was this. It was really amazing, which kind of thing speaks to what you're talking about. But she's like, look, these guys are like, if you look at some of these guys who are street hustlers, who are running like 100-person cocaine de- crack dealerships.
2: They're entrepreneurs. Like, yeah. like hardcore
0: entrepreneurs. Absolutely. They got HR. They got accounting. They got distribution. They got all that stuff. They're just selling the wrong product. Yeah. Right? So I, I really do, and she's doing some amazing things. It might be a really cool thing for you guys to do with Coabundance. You could bring a bunch of people into the penitentiary to mentor these guys.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's what's really great about America too, is you meet so many amazing people up to so many great things and uh, you just got to get behind them. I, I know that when I hit my number, because I hit my number about four years ago, the number that I wanted to hit for financial freedom in my mind. And I remember I was kind of depressed for about six or eight months because I thought, you know, like John or Paul or whatever on the way to Damascus, some light was going to shine through the heavens. I'd be blind. And I realized I want to put shoes on the shoeless's feet or I want to put glasses on the people that can't see. And nothing came to me. And I was kind of depressed that nothing kind of rolled into view as the next great mountain to climb. And then I bumped into a guy, uh, Alan Graham, who does great work with Community First there in Austin and tries to put the homeless in homes with dignity and tiny homes. And he does amazing work. And he just said to me one time when I was telling him the same story, he goes, you know, all of us out here running these charities really need money. So if you just keep doing what you do and make money and write us checks, that is a huge need. And And that's when it kind of clicked back into place for me. For now, it could still change. And so I love writing checks to these people and, you know, Supporting them in, in all their endeavors, there's some amazing people up to some incredible stuff, and that's really the solution. Is people like your friend Cat uh, Hoke and it and Javon? It's you know that the sad thing is government doesn't seem to help that much. I don't know if you've noticed that. Like yeah. I mean, there's definitely a role for government, but if government could actually do it, I'd be like, hey, let's have 99% taxes or 85% taxes. But the reality is, the sad thing is, no matter how well intentioned government is. They put all their efforts into stuff and it almost seems to make it, I wouldn't say worse, but it doesn't certainly heal it. Right. So it doesn't take it to the next level. It might it might make being poor more more tolerable, which is great, like with food stamps or housing. But without that educational piece, that entrepreneurial piece, somebody actually showing people a new way of being. And it has to be most of the folks in these spaces have to be shown by somebody who's been there. I can't parachute in and like be, hey, you should do this and that because I don't have their experience. I was the middle of the middle class. I could probably help somebody that had, you know, a soldier's father who was super aggressive, but I can't help a guy from the inner city. And that's how I related to Will when I talked to him is he got in a gang fight and shot a guy. Well, I got into a few fights, too, but we didn't have guns, so nobody got killed. You know, there might have been a few broken bottles and that was it. But there's no question in my mind that if that situation had occurred and they'd been shooting at me and I'd happen to have a gun, I'd have shot back. Does that make sense? Like, I think that's very natural. He just happened to hit somebody. And so then he goes to jail for a long time for that. But put in a situation where if I'd lived his life and that leads to one of my greatest ahas of life, Darius, I had I was watching this movie the other day and it was all these characters in the movie weren't really in this particular movie, weren't trying to harm each other. They just all had different perspectives of information and they didn't know what the other person knew. And if you'd been any person in that movie and it wasn't a great movie and you're going to ask me the name and I can't even remember the name, but the (laughs) aha I had was if you were any of the characters in this stupid movie I was watching, you would have been doing the same thing. They were all acting in correctly from their point of view, but they were all clashing because the the stories weren't aligned. And I think that's, what's going on a lot of times in life is if you live someone else's life and you saw their story, you would probably behave in a similar manner. Yeah. And so, you know, that means that we just have to keep adding enlightenment and then backing the people that can reach the constituents that we're trying to help, which fortunately there's a lot of great people out there doing a lot of great work.
0: Yeah, I uh, I I love everything you just said. It just reminded me of a of a a, a Mentor Minds Rand Stagen, who runs Stagen Leadership Institute in Dallas. And um and his whole thing is great leaders meet people where they're at, you know. And I think what you're talking what at least what I just picked up from what you put down is this is about empathy and grace, you know, and, and granting people the grace. And I think that those are the things that great leaders need to start to develop. And what, what, and some are doing a great job at it and government's probably the worst example of it, but you know, what, what he's, one of the things he says is he says, you know, we live in a world of level five problems and level three leaders Yeah, he's you know, using Jim Collins language. And, and when I, I look at that, I go, I'm really hopeful of, of, of the leveling up of leadership and, and I, and. I think I was I was talking to somebody about this and they're like "I'd love to get your perspective on this." You know, they said, "You know, when the people were in the 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 dark ages, they didn't call it the dark ages, but when they got to the renaissance they did." Yeah. And and so I kind of feel like right now like we're at we're at this like this there's a lot of pain out there and and I actually really believe entrepreneurship is the answer to this. Um, and that the pain is like we're in the dark ages and we're about to hit the Renaissance. Right. And we're going to say, oh, those are the dark ages. And this is this great period of enlightenment. Um, what, what are your thoughts around that?
2: You know, one, I read a great book. I think it was called Swerve. But it was about the fact that the Renaissance only could occur because in Italy at that time, you had these city states and a lot of them invented like banking. And the Florentine was actually the most true form of currency. So they hadn't debased their currency and it became very strong. And because of that strength of currency, they were literally able to stand up, you know, to the church for the first time ever and say, Hey, wait a second, there's another way you can look at this. There's, you know, there's like scientific discovery and there's artistic perspectives and that maybe the earth isn't the center of the universe and all these different things. But it was because of the strength of the economy, if you will, and the currency of the Florentine And the the, the renaissance in general was birthed in Italy, uh, that that, that, that those truths were able to come out. So tying that back to entrepreneurialism, you know, entrepreneurialism could be the greatest force for change in the universe. I mean, you may want to have electric cars, but until a guy like Elon Musk comes along and says, hey, I'm going all out for electric cars, when everyone, including me back at the time, thought he was insane. Who who starts a car company, you know, in the middle of... And now he's changed the language from when are we going to have electric cars for, to how long are we going to keep having gas guzzling cars? Now there's all kinds of different permutations in that. And, you know, you, I'm not going to get lost in the global warming conversation here, but entrepreneurs can really change the world. And then, and then when you see people that have built businesses and then go back and try to help, you know, whatever circumstance they came from, it's even more potent and more powerful. So, you know, I, I I'm of course, on your, your side on that. I think all great change and all great breakthrough comes from really self-interested people in the private sector that have a, an itch or a bug or a problem they're trying to solve. And it's usually, they're usually trying to solve two things, an internal complexity that they have. And then they're trying to play that out by solving a problem in the outside world. Yeah. And most of them I know have huge compassion and big hearts. Um, but you also have to have like a safety net and all these different things. But I am I'm, I'm with you on that. I mean, entrepreneurialism is the only way I
0: think that you have transformation. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Darius here, and by now you might know that I'm passionate about a few things. Pizza, pink unicorns, core values, and down, dirty, interesting conversation with some amazing people. However, the biggest one that I've spent most of my career on is entrepreneurship and scale. You see, look, my first few years in business, I spent like probably a good five years of my life getting my freaking teeth kicked. I mean, really getting crushed. And I learned a lot during that time period. So I spent the greater part of the last couple of years helping entrepreneurs scale their businesses in a meaningful way without going through the same growing pains that I did. And what I realized is that CEOs and business leaders don't know if they can scale and thus they do the right thing at the wrong times. This causes them to lose clarity, lose momentum, alignment, and the bottom line is you lose money. And look, you don't have to do that. It's why I created what I call the scalability assessment. And you can access it 100% for free. That's right, guys. There are perks to listening to The Greatness Machine. All you have to do is go to dariusscale.com. That's D-A-R-I-U-S scale, S-C-A-L-E ecom And there, you can check to see if your business is set up to scale properly. It's going to give you a scalability score at the end. And it's also going to give you some clarity on what you can do next. Once again, guys, that's www.itsdariusscale.com. Once again, guys, it's dariusscale.com. And now back to the show. So, so, um, I want to go back to, you know, you, you started working with Keller Williams and w- like when you did that, obviously that was a job, right? And I think prior to that, you were, you, I think you were selling computer, like, like. Sold computer.
2: computers, door to door. Then I took, sold all my possessions and hitchhiked around the world for two years. So, then I oh, came back and got it. That's amazing.
0: That's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. So, so you hitchhike around the world, you're selling computers before that, you come back, you get it. Your mom was, uh, was, was working with Keller Williams. Is that correct? Yeah. My mom's an agent.
2: Keller had five agents when she joined. So my dad retired the army. She went into real estate to make a couple extra bucks. And then, um, she's like, why don't you come work with me in real estate? I said, I'm never going to go into real estate. I just want to, I just, you know, but I do have credit card debt. I just hitchhiked around the world. I ran up my credit card. I, I'm at negative $1,500 net worth. So I'll come work with you temporarily while I look for a real job. That's what I told her. I, I wanted to go into Wall Street or something. I wanted to be a finance guy or start some business. And uh, then I got into real estate. I sold a guy a house that was a buddy of mine from college. We drove around three weekends looking at houses, drank beer after looking at houses, and then he bought a house. I made 7500 bucks. I was like, oh, this is a pretty good job. Maybe I like this
0: job. <laughs> what, what year was this? This was
2: 94,
0: 1994. Yeah, was, yeah. Know. So,
2: how, how did that first $7,500 check taste? Oh, man, it, it was great. I'd been poor for a long time at that point. Like, I, when I hitchhiked around the world, I lived on 10 bucks a day. So, it was, wow, it was, wow. It was, oh, sorry, 20 bucks a day, 20 bucks a day. So, I had seven grand. I spent seven grand per year for two years. Wow. That's which, insane. by the way, it made me in the top. In some of the countries I was in, that might have put me in the top 5%, you know, but in, for an American, it, you know, it wasn't that much. So yeah, I was ready. I was ready. And then I got, then I got a taste for making money. And that, that another thing that went on for me then is in sales, you know, you get a lot of sales training. That was my first full exposure to sales training and Gary Keller is a great teacher. And I learned there, wow, if I learned this little script or this little way to approach this business or this way to prospect, my results would just leapfrog forward. Unlike school where you, you don't know why you're learning calculus. You don't know why you're learning philosophy. There's no immediate impact on your life, but suddenly in business, there was this immediate increase in my income as soon as I learned something new. And then, uh, then I take that next level and I start opening franchises. And the same thing was true. Gary Keller was a huge teacher. So every I would learn, oh, if you learn how to hire just a little bit better, if you learn how to put a system in place just a little bit better, you immediately, almost, within months, you make more money. And then from that point forward, 1994, I'm 27 years old, I become like a learning junkie. Then I become a straight A student. And ever wow. since then, I, and to this day, I mean, I'm I'm reading 40 books a year. I'm taking notes. I'm taking classes. I'm spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on education, probably, uh, you know, certainly 100 grand a year on education nonstop. Just like now I get it. Like, oh, give me more. Give me more information. How can I live longer? How can I uh, contribute more? How can I have the greatest adventures? How can I be the best father, the best husband? You know, I'm constantly engaged in being coached and learning on a continuous basis, because what you begin to realize is how little you know. Um, But anyway, going back to that beginning, so I I sold for three years, I made some good money, but Keller Williams was eager to grow back then and they wanted franchise owners. And I didn't want to keep selling real estate after three years. I wanted to go do something more. So I bought some franchises in North Texas, New Mexico. Uh, Still wasn't very wealthy at that time, but I was, you know, I was now probably 35, 40 grand net worth. I bought my first property, which I turned into a rental property after living in it for two years because I didn't want to mow the yard anymore. I'd had enough of that. And went up to North Texas, New Mexico. And my mom and I together started opening real uh, real estate companies up there. And same thing. We had, you know, we still didn't have any money. We were just in the middle of the middle of class. My dad was a soldier. If you've ever been in the military, they take care of you, but you don't make any real money. Um, and then we started opening these franchises. And after tons of failure and learning opportunities, we we built the largest group of franchises in the company.
0: So, so when, when you were doing that, I mean, you were really, really just investing in yourself and were you was in your mind, you were just, was that, that unbridled ambition was what kicked in? Or Was it like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to build the biggest this or like, no, 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 no. It was much more, you know, I think people it's
2: pivot, that book pivot by the guy from LinkedIn was so good. I thought, but it, it was just like constant pivoting. Like I remember, I was just hoping to make a couple hundred grand a year from the first franchise I owned. Like maybe one day, if I work really hard, I can get this thing to make me 200 grand a year. Now that one makes 800,000 a year and I've got 14 of them. So, you know, there was no like strategy. There was just like doing everything I could with what was in front of me. One thing I was one element of my character that was useful is that I was aggressive. So a lot of guys that I started with back then, they bought one franchise, or two franchises. I bought as many as I could. In fact, at one point, I wanted to own 100. Uh, that was all the way until the crash of 06. So like maybe it's good that I didn't have 100 on the ground in 06. Um, but I was just always looking for expansion and for more. And I've been that way even to this day, even though now my focus is on my family and being a dad and being a husband. Um, I still have a fairly expansionist viewpoint of the universe.
0: So in, when 06 ha- or you know the crash happened... You know, I lived in California at the time. I, we've talked a little bit about this. I was running a subprime mortgage lender. We blew up in 07. That's when when the market crashed, and, and California got hit pretty hard. Uh, I know Austin probably got hit less hard, um, but other parts of the country that you're probably in probably did get hit pretty hard. Uh, how many how many fra- how many franchises did you own like when the market crashed? If I was
2: at fifteen then, and now I'm at fourteen. So I'll give you an example. So when yeah, when it hit. Now again, I was a super learning based individual along the way, so I had paid attention to what people said. And one of them was that you should never take personal guarantees. So I only had like 15% of my stuff had personal guarantees on it. So the economy crashed and uh, we had losing offices. We had some still making some money. Basically we went down about 70% in revenue and we never went to negative profitability, but some of my franchises just died. You know, the one, the further out ones, the expansion is the, when you were on the X, ex- edges of the suburbs they just died you know they no revenue and all the expenses right and I remember I had one office where my rent was you know nine thousand dollars a month and we weren't paying it because we couldn't it was there was no personal guarantee it was just a corporate you know there's a relationship between five partners that happen to own a franchise I had partners in every franchise. And this, land, you know, the, the landlord and, you know, he, I, I paid him what I could. I paid him 50% of the profits if I made any. So I, you know, every month I was negative. I didn't pay him anything. And if I made two grand, I'd pay him a grand. And that was just me deciding what to do. And I remember he kept threatening me, like, I'm going to lock you out. I'm like, dude, do me a favor. Lock me out. Yes, please. I'm losing. I'm writing <laughs> checks here, man. I'm losing 50 to 100 grand a year on this business. I'm robbing my good shops to feed my bad shops. I'm really just trying to keep my people employed and see what happens. And you'd be doing me a favor if you'd lock the doors, but it was painful. It was a scary time. And that was kind of 06, 07, 08. That we had just expanded to four. We opened four offices the most we'd ever opened in 06. So we were just kind of rising up. Yeah. Um, I was a little nervous though. I remember thinking, cause I did, I had a, a finger on the pulse of it. I was like, man, this just doesn't seem right. Like, you know, the, the I get in. I remember getting in a taxi in, in Vegas and the taxi driver was like, yeah, I just bought three condos in that new tower. I'd like, what's that tower? He'd be like, oh, that's the MGM whatever. I'm like, he goes, I just bought three condos there. I'm like, you did? Yeah. He's like, yeah. I'm like, why well, did you qualify for that? They didn't ask. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. oh. So I was being somewhat cautious. The one thing I had done prudently was I built a cash reserve for two reasons. One, I was so busy. I remember I had $4 million in cash that, you know, right then. It's because I, A, I was too busy, but B, I was just a little nervous. Like I couldn't even bring myself to buy, you know, a house for me to live in because I felt everything felt really hot, you know, to me. But I was opening offices and putting money into that. But in each case, I would negotiate like hell to get the personal guarantee off the offices. So again, a lesson I've learned that paid off really well because when the landlords start to get iffy with me, I'd be like, I just say the same thing, man. Like I don't, you don't know, you don't. I don't owe you this. This is a corporate LLC that owes you this. And if you want to shut me down and I'm losing money, you're actually just doing me a favor. So they were all pretty cooperative with me. Funny enough, the one that I had a personal guarantee on that did fail, they never contacted me again. That was the strangest thing. There was one office that failed, and I personally guaranteed it. I just locked the doors because it was a disaster. And they never, ever, I never heard from them again, which is the strangest thing. I still, thats a mystery of life, but I think it was a very, very wealthy family and they just moved on. So anyway, um, yeah, that was a scary time. But then, oh, eight, oh, nine, it's kind of stabilized and I'm sitting on this liquidity and I've had to write some checks and stuff like that. And uh, then I started looking around and buying some stuff in nine and 10. And then by 11, I was pretty certain it was the greatest buying opportunity of all time. And so- I went in with everything I could. I started teaching my agents now, now maybe the best time in your life to buy real estate. I had a whole class that I taught. I got about 30 or 40 that listened to me out of 4,000 that come up to me every now and then and just thank me. They're so happy because they bought a bunch of real estate back then. And we, we ended up buying close to a thousand single family homes just with my family office, uh, distressed debt. And then when the market veed back up and it came back both my old real estate residential businesses and now my new kind of private equity, distressed debt, single family rental business came back. Um, then I, then, I, then my life changed, Darius. That was around, it's only around 2013, I realized, wow, I've kind of hit a number that is pretty significant here and probably, you know, touch wood, it'd be pretty hard to blow it in this what? lifetime. And then then the world looks a little different. It gets kind of easier.
0: Well, So, wow. Um, so it's funny. Uh, 06 is when I doubled down on my first business. And I signed a $30,000 a month, 17,000 square foot lease, no uh-huh. PG, uh-huh. but I was in San Francisco. And so when the world imploded, they're like, we don't care. They're like, cause there are all these tech companies around, right? right. <laughs> so they wouldn't negotiate with me. I had to bail on my lease. And then that eventually actually made me, force me to shut down my company. Um, so you did or didn't have a PG? I did not as well. I I I did what you did. I, I had a standby letter of credit for like i don't know 80 grand or something yeah. that, I, that yeah. I got in place of a pg mm-hmm. and they just hit that and i paid that 80 grand and that was the end of it
2: yeah um, that's the other thing i negotiate sometimes if they wouldn't let me off the pg I'd, I'd have a declining pg so it'd be like first year 100% of the lease, second year 80% 60 i try to get it to disappear after three but it's certainly after five it would disappear or, or just go down every year yeah so your whack is less but anyway yeah it was a scary time, dude. That was a crazy, you know, I've talked about that. I know, and it was harder for you. The mortgage business absolutely blew up. I
0: mean, it was. Yeah, it, it was. I was, I was, uh, and, and, you know, I was all refis, you know, six, I was 100% refi business and it was all subprime. I was literally the eye of the storm. And, and then I just couldn't get out of my own way. But, you know, it, I learned a lot then. People always say, well, would, oh, would, would, I bet you wouldn't change anything. I'm like, no, nah, I'd change all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't do any of that. I wouldn't put myself through that again. I was too hard on myself. But I want to go. So so what, do, you mind, do you mind throwing, like, can we talk net worth numbers back then?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh,
0: yeah. I mean, that's probably, no, it's okay. I,
2: I, I think when I felt like I was wealthy, is was like 40. I was 13. I was probably at about 40. And then I was yeah. like, wow, this is a lot of money. Where that's were you,
0: where were you at before? Like before? I mean, first of all, let me just say this: for those of you that don't know housing market, literally saying this, the bio you literally couldn't have been more right with that call. Two thousand eleven literally was the bottom. It was the bottom. Yeah, so like like it didn't. There were, did not go an inch below that bottom, and no, that was and the perfect was totally Up from that. that's such great timing, and such, and you had such market insight because you're watching. But I was
2: I was still scared. Your original question was, "Did I have this grand plan?" And what I'm trying to say is, like. I worked my tail off. I always had a vision of doing more, but it was not like my original vision was to own 100 franchises, be the largest residential real estate company in the world. And then 06 happened. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is really tough. Then I started buying these distressed assets. I was like, oh, it's really good to own distressed you know, real estate. So I, there was no grand plan. There was just a lot of hustle and a lot of awareness and a lot of constantly shifting the vision, pivoting, if you will, to yeah. what showed up in my life. Does that make sense?
0: Totally, yeah, and I and I think that that kind of speaks to where I've seen a lot. Like I I've now had the honor of having a lot of friends that have done well, and it speaks to that grit and that like pivoting and and moving with the market and being flexible and and and, and believing in themselves and trusting themselves even when things aren't going their way you know, so obviously you you did that, did that well. Yeah. And I'll tell you another
2: story and this is, it's, it's going to sound weird. That's why it's strange to talk about net worth, but like, so I made 3.6 million in 06, right? That was the peak. So I was making a bunch of money. That's to me after all my partners got paid. And then like at the bottom of 08, I was down into the six figures and it's going to, your friends, your, your listeners are like, well, that sounds really tough.
0: Oh, poor, poor David.
2: <laughs> but my overhead was seven hundred thousand a month. Like, so now it's like way more than that—several million a month. But at that time, it was seven hundred thousand a month, and I, I'm looking at everything like, ah, like this is really bad. My income's going down like you know sixty percent a year, but my fixed overhead. They, sure, it came down some because some of it's taxes and bonuses, but there's a chunk of that that's got to be paid no matter what, and we were writing checks to you know, we, we shuttered the ones that were hopeless, but we tried to keep a lot of them going. Like, so we're taking checks from here to fund the ones that are doing badly. And uh, so that'll give you an example. I mean, I was just lucky enough. The model we ran was efficient and it was lean. And the biggest two expenses I had were taxes and bonuses to my employees. We've always played a low base and a super high bonus. So that's a, a lesson I also learned that's that I still to this day try to follow. Um, so from the outside, everyone would have said, oh, my gosh, you're still in the top 1% of earners in the country. You shouldn't be stressed. But from inside the cockpit, the wings were on fire, the engine was sputtering out, and, and the overhead was just fixed. Like, that was it. There were 700000 a month that had to be spent no matter what. Um, but we pulled out of it. So that, that I, I don't remember the net worth numbers at 06 to 08. I, I wasn't real. I was... At that time, I was just in it. Like, I didn't really come out and look at it from above that much and see where everything was. I've gone back and tracked it and kind of created a rough chart, which I know you've probably seen, but I just can't
0: remember. Yeah, no, no um, worries. So, you're actually touching on the, the in, we got about nine minutes and I know you got to run. So, but I want to go into this because you just touched on something that I think fascinated me about the in your book, Wealth Can't Wait. We've talked a lot about this offline, but this idea of your passive income covering your fixed overhead. And I know that you weren't talking about that with your business, but you've now applied this and you call it being a hundred percenter. Yeah. Do you mind talking about that a little bit?
2: Sure. So this is the idea we teach everyone in GoBundance, which is, and again, we're just scrappy entrepreneurs. We're not the guy, if you're going to invent the next iPad or be the next uh, Elon Musk, then you shouldn't listen to me at all. But if you're a scrappy guy, maybe a C student, and you just want to be financially free, the way we try to teach people is you should invest in passive income vehicles. We call it horizontal because you can have a bunch of them in a row. So it's like a horizontal line of income streams. And you should be trying to think, how can I cover my monthly overhead with income streams from investments I made? For instance, there are some pipeline investments you can make in oil and gas, which oil and gas is depressed right now. So I think it's a reasonably safe bet that'll dividend out 8%. So let's say you put 100 grand in that and you're you're making 8%. That's 8,000. Now, let's say you spend 8,000 a month to live, which is pretty low by some standards, pretty high by some standards. But let's just throw all that judgment aside and say, let's say this human being we're referring to lives on 8 grand a month. So that's uh, 96,000 years, their overhead, if they had hundred grand and they put it in that 8% di- yielding dividend stock, they've covered one month of their life. And if you can fill out all 12 of those months, right? If you can cover all of your overhead with, with passive income, you're then financially free and you can be nothing but creative. You could quit right then and go surf forever in Guatemala, or maybe there's no water in Nicaragua, I think is where I'm in. Uh, or you could like keep working and keep building. But, but until you get to that point, so, and people are, you know, we love real estate for this real estate does feel like watching paint compared to like investing in Apple or something like that. But, you know, I've seen the stock market go way up and I've seen it go way down. I've seen it crash and crater real estate's pretty steady. We had the big crash in 06, but it was really a lender led. It was your fault, Darius. It was
0: a full blame, full blame.
2: <laughs> but if you own real estate, Over time, it's like this snowball. It just builds and accumulates over time. So we just encourage people to become 100 percenter. So if if you had 21% of your annual budget met by horizontal income, you'd be a 20 percenter. And it's just a change in mindset when people come into our tribe and they're like, oh, my gosh, I'm making a million a year, but I'm a zero percenter. Like I got a guy came in that was a millionaire with zero passive income. Today, he's at 500,000. It's been eight years in passive income. And he's, you know, he lives on 360. So he's 125 percenter. Because it just shifted his mindset. Now he's an extremely aggressive human, so he immediately took all his money and started buying multifamily. So he's done extraordinarily well. But it shifts your mindset because you'll have doctors out there making three million a year, but spending three million one, and they're stressed and they're on the gerbil wheel, and they may not admit it to themselves. But you take take that same doctor and say their overheads a million a year. Now they're making a million a year from their real estate, and they're you know, still making their three million a year. Now life looks totally different. And that's what we try to teach people is how to take that super pressure off so you can find a way to contribute your gifts to the world, whether it's surfing in Nicaragua or feeding the world or changing, you know, changing the
0: inner cities. And there's so much work to be done. When did when did you uh, hit your when did you become a 100 percenter?
2: Yeah, I was pretty frugal as a young man. I'm not now, but I was pretty frugal as a young man. So I probably hit it when I was in my early thirties, but Darius, I was so ambitious back then. I didn't notice it. Like a lot of what happened to me, I just didn't notice. I didn't stop to add it up back then. Um, I just drove forward as hard as I could. And uh, yeah, I'd say I hit it probably mid thirties, maybe.
0: Yeah. It's such, it's such a game changer. I never had that perspective. I started thinking about it probably like four or five years ago. I'm like, man, I don't have a lot of passive income. I was probably a 10 or 15 percenter. And I kind of like the, the guy you were just describing, really good income. I had all my assets tied up in my business, and I had right. like one rental property, right? And then I ended up, I wanted to leave that. I left my company, right? I, I, but I, it was pre-exit. I didn't want to run the business anymore, and I lost my income. And it fucking freaked me out, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, I will say this. I'm going to give you some credit right now. Is, yeah, I'm 100% right now. and That's I, you know, awesome.
2: Yeah, I saw your plan you put together in Tiger. It was amazing. You are just so thoughtful when you... When you put your mind to something, you just really grind it out. So, yeah, congratulations. It It changes everything, doesn't it? When you're a hundred percenter.
0: Yeah, that it's it's. I'm still like not super comfortable with it because it's new. But but it's it is like it's different, right? It's like oh wow, like I'm I do I'm gonna focus on what I want to focus on. The other thing that I want to you know I know we have about three minutes here. I just want to bring up one last thing that really man was a game changer for me. I read your book Wealth Can't Wait, and it was this thing around negative self talk and 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 the, the these conversations oh i can't do that or 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 like you know like like if i do that something negative is going to happen and and really flipping that on its head those are like the two things from wealth can't wait that i was like these are mind blowers yeah I mean, I mean, and like changing like literally stopping yourself and saying i'm going to say the opposite of this to myself right. Right no and negative self-talk
2: now. is super important i mean we just get so many you know in the movie, the beautiful minds, you know, there's that guy he's crazy. Right. And there's, the, he sees these three people that are imaginary. If you remember the beautiful minds movie with, um, Oh yeah. Russell, Russell Crowe. Russell. Thanks. Yeah. yeah, yeah that yeah. great actor. So, um, so in that movie, he's, he's like, you know, psycho, whatever the word is where you see people and uh, he sees these people and he lives this crazy life. I think we all have that a little bit. We have these negative Nellies in our brains that just tell us negative stuff all the time. You can't do that. Why'd you do that? You're an idiot. What a fool, you know, and, and it's only you because no one else really notices you might do something stupid, but everyone else just kind of moves on and you're stuck. I'm like, why did you say that? Why did you blow that? why did you do that stupid real estate deal? Whatever. And my philosophy is you just, Turn the, you can never make it go completely away. You just turn the volume down on the negative stuff and you turn up the volume on the positive stuff. So you can override a negative with a positive by by saying the opposite to yourself. And then the other thing is you just kind of dismiss and ignore that. Oh, yeah. Hey, how are you? And in the end of the movie, A Beautiful Mind, he's actually walking in to get an award. I think they gave him the Nobel Prize for economics or something for some concept he came up with. And you see the three you know, pieces of his mind that are psychotic, psychotic, that they go, hey, oh, and he just walks by and ignores them. And what he's learned to do is manage his psychosis by walking past the negatives. And I think that's something that I've, I've spent a lot of time on too, is just turning down the volume of the negative things and turning up the volume of the positive things. The negative things never go away. I don't think there's a single person out there that doesn't sometimes beat themselves up, but you just turn the volume way down. And you're like, oh yeah, there you are. I see you. I'm not going to pay attention to you though. I'm not going right. to feed you. I'm going to feed
0: the positive. Yeah. My, my therapist says that that's, I do a somatic experience therapy. And he says, when you start um, fighting back with your negative egos, when you know you're healing trauma. Wow. That's yeah.
1: beautiful.
0: Yes. Yeah, so he's like, that's when you know you're, you're like at the tail end of like healing traumatic experiences or a lot of that negative self-talk is just tra- trauma trapped in you and it's finding its way through your ego. Uh, but, yeah, it's kind of an interesting way to think about it. Um that we, you know, we all have so to... much
2: trauma, man. I think that's – a friend of mine said recently he thought the number one problem the world has is trauma. Yeah. Whether it's the sure. black light, you know, it's whether whether it's a, a criminal getting – you know, or a cop beating up on a guy that he shouldn't be, it's all trauma. Both Both sides have trauma, right? It's just – we all have trauma to different degrees. So if we could spend our life focusing on how to heal trauma, maybe we could make a dent in the negativity
0: of the world. Oh, man. Beautiful, beautiful way to end the show. I, I swear to God, if you'll have, if you'll do it, I want to have you. I want to have one more show with you. We, okay. you know, it's been tough. I want to talk about. You have an amazing system for achieving goals and the way you do it, and I really want to share that with the audience. Do you mind if we I hit up your your people and try to get another show on the on the board?
2: I'd love to do it, Darius. It's great to be with you. And like I said, I'm at a point where anything we can do together to make a difference in the world, I'm sign me up. You know, let's, yeah. let's try to make this world a better
0: place, brother. So much gratitude. I really thank you. This was so great. I can't wait for our next conversation. And man, thank you so much again.
2: Thanks, Derek. It's great to be with you, my friend.
0: All right. Peace out, everybody. We'll talk to you guys soon. See you. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Guys, The Greatness Machine is all about two things. People who are living their passions, and those who are creating greatness in the world. And we feature these messages and speakers so it can help you step into your greatness within your own life and your own business. If you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform you're tuning in from and leave us a review. We love getting reviews for the show. If the episode made you think of someone who is leveling up in their business and life, print screen it, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to learn from one another. You can also go to our website, www.thegreatnessmachine.com. That's www.thegreatnessmachine.com. And on there, You'll see special tools to help you scale your business faster. Show notes for the episode to help you integrate the lessons. And you will also get links that came out during the show. So, on their look, you can also grab a copy of my book, The Core Value Equation, which is a resource for helping CEOs and business leaders establish core values from their teams that don't suck. And mind you, a lot of them suck get access to this and more at www.thegreatnessmachine.com. With that said, you guys, look, thank you so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. we out of here. See you guys next time. Uh
1: This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media,